0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Stuart Lundy. Stuart, along with his partner and wife, Natalie, farmed 50 acres of land on a tiny peninsula in rural Virginia. For the past decade, he's practiced biodynamics, and for the past eight years, he's made and applied the biodynamic preparations. Stuart also works for the Josephine Porter Institute for Applied Biodynamics. In his free time, he is an active esoteric researcher, amateur alchemist, and Practicing Herbalist, experimenting with a wide range of innovations on the farm. He consults with farmers and gardeners across the world. You can find Stuart and his work at perennialroots.com. Stuart, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Will.
0: So, how and when did you find biodynamics?
1: Oh, well, that's a story. Um, Natalie and I went to Italy in 2010. And at the time, I had really no concept about biodynamics in general and uh, none in regard to Steiner specifically. Uh, We visited different farms at the time. We had already decided we were going to farm. But we stumbled onto a particular vineyard that was transitioning over to being uh, biodynamic. Um, That's where we first explicitly heard the term, at least within my memory. Um, We then returned to our farm, which we'd always set out to be something that was going to be permaculture, organic, sustainable. For a couple of years, biodynamics just didn't come into it. But within the third year, that's when things really started to become more biodynamic. And I realized that I'd actually read certain anthroposophists without realizing it. Specifically, the work of Owen Barfield, which I'd been introduced to back in college and hadn't realized. I knew he was one of the inklings in the circle with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, but I didn't know about Barfield as an anthroposophist. Instead, I accidentally had myself prepared to receive certain ideas of Steiner. And, and I think. Barfield's own words, um, I'm going to have to paraphrase here, but where Barfield concludes his investigation is the point of departure for the beginning of Steiner's inquiry. So it began in my exposure in Italy, then percolated through the readings of Owen Barfield. And yeah, finally, I ended up studying with Hugh Courtney, uh, on and off for about seven years, but yeah, that's how it got started.
0: Interesting. Uh, do you make your own preps?
1: We do. We make almost all of our own preparations or rather we make all of them, not all of them consistently because we carry some over from year to year, but yeah, we make them all. And we got cows this last year. Finally, always said that it was going to be a Pivotal moment for the farm, and we do. We finally have our piney woods cattle, and that enables us to make far more from the resources of the farm itself.
0: Well, tell us about uh, some of that prep making. I'm under the impression you do some additional non traditional preps as well.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, Well, I like to experiment with different aspects from within the farm organism. We have a hunter who uses the 15 acres of woods on our lot and that's pretty nice because then he's able to actually collect deer from our actual property itself. So we're trying to keep them as close as possible. I do some other experimentation with you know different sheaths, possible substitutes. The hard thing is of course in verifying empirically that this is actually you know a perfect substitute for something that Steiner recommended, because these things are pretty complex. You can't just abstract them out in a lab and find out whether they are, you know, chemically identical. You have to see what they do to a plant, and since every plant is always different, and then the astrological backdrop of every moment is different, it's very hard to pinpoint that. Um, Though it is interesting to take chromas and see which one looks good and which one looks bad, Uh, It can be very hard to pinpoint those. But I do some um, alchemical augmentation of the biodynamic preparations, including things like, I'll start with valerian. Valerian uh, is used as a preparation in biodynamics where the juice is pressed from the flowers. And that's usually where the story stops. And I don't have a problem with that. But uh, if you take that a bit further... You can recombine it with the salts extracted from the plant itself and you nudge it a bit more towards a spagyric form than what otherwise would have been. And I really feel like Steiner is providing something of a hint at the end of the agriculture course where he talks about valerian and he talks about it in unusual ways and very briefly, but it's as if he's showing something that is a, uh, almost the first part of her preparation, something that will perhaps stimulate the imaginations of those who are listening.
0: And you do other Spagyric's on the farm? You do a Spagyric of the 500?
1: Yes. um, We have a Spagyric of the 500. And for those listening who might not know what that word is, a Spagyric is a word coined, I believe it was Paracelsus about, and it means essentially to separate and to recombine. So you separate out something, and then you find a clever way of putting it back together, almost on a new octave. And that can be done when you look at any of the preparations, but in particular when you look at the 500 horn manure, where you have the horn, which is separated out to the front of the cow, and then you have the manure, which is ejected out of the back end of the the cow. Then you marry those two again that in itself is already part of that separating and rejoining. It's just you're using the cow, so to speak, as your alembic that prepares these two separate substances, and then you're recombining them within the horn. Um, I nudge that a little further in certain cases, and that is how I make these preparations. Um, Timothy Wilkerson made a 500 spagyric for me which amounts to macerating the corn manure um, in this case in alcohol though you could use other fluids macerating it and then decanting it distilling it and taking what's left and burning that and burning it to so that you can extract some special soluble salts and then recombining that with the distillate and then you allow that to age together. So I've used that; it seems to do very well. But again, it's hard to prove some of these things, at least um, to the standards of you know secular science.
0: And can you describe uh, how you would apply, like a, a Spodjeric five hundred? Is it some like a milliliter in a oh. in a thousand liters, or?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I usually stir about five gallons at a time, enough to do say a single backpack sprayer. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I spray that out over whatever area I can cover. When I use the spagyric form, what I tend to do now is I put a drop in plus whatever I was going to use of the original horn manure as well, because I make a lot of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I make enough to give away. I, I try not to move too much into commoditizing the preparations. I prefer them as much as possible to live within a gift economy. But with the spagyric form, I just add a drop. And then I let that sit in water with the raw, so to speak, horn <laughs> manure. And I let those two sit overnight. And then those two kind of meld together a little bit. It wakes up the 500. And then I stir the next morning. Um, sorry, next evening. Hugh Courtney pointed out, and this is usually something glossed over in biodynamics, is that. If the preparation, particularly 500 horn manure, is soaked beforehand, it, is, it performs markedly better. Um, in any trial where that has been done, it outperforms the other versions. But it's just something that sometimes falls along the wayside. To me, it's a bit like activating a sourdough starter before making bread. You don't have to do it, but if you don't activate it, It'll just take longer to perform the same activity.
0: And you also do, uh, like a circulation on the 500, uh, Um, glass on glass.
1: Yes. That's something where I think that the best way to store the preparations is to allow them to breathe, but to re-breathe their own air, so to speak. So they, it evaporates and then recondenses into itself. Um, so what I've worked out is taking two Mason jars, um, and then combining them so that the top half is air and and is exposed to the light, and the bottom half is interred within the earth or stored in peat moss. My idea here is that you're never then going to have to manage the humidity levels of your preparations because as something evaporates, it will then condense once more. And rather than just losing energy year after year as you store the preparations, this distillation process is almost a kind of etheric weaving as it distills and condenses, distills and condenses. That's happening because of a new influx of energy and that it's then precipitating within the preparation. So rather than it decaying like a normal, normally stored preparation might, it can actually accumulate energy every year. So I'm shifting all of my preparations to have that sort of hood um, so that they work like a closed alembic, um, mm-hmm. not anaerobic. That's that's important. There's enough air above it, almost equal portions air to the preparation below. Um, but then it becomes its own terrarium, its own ecosystem, and then can evolve.
0: How about some of the further ferments, the the weed ferment, the uh, manure ferments that you're doing in, in larger tanks?
1: Oh yeah. Um, there was an interesting creation, and I'm I'm spacing on the name right now, but it was a fellow in, I believe it was Texas, but this was in the 1920s. He came up with a special cow manure ferment, which I which really tickles me that that was happening here in the U.S. right around the time Steiner is coming up and delivering the biodynamic ideas in Europe. Well, he took cow manure and put a certain amount of sea salt together with it, allows those to kind of ferment together with a Kind of starter yeast those age anaerobically and then it's siphoned off in a special way where you just you're just left with what he thought of as like enzyme water um, there are many other ways of thinking of that but um, it's a very special way to produce something that is analogous to i kind of think of it like a cow poop kimchi it's a sauerkraut process but applied to manure and that is a very easy way to process significant quantities of manure and to make it a super concentrate. Like it's, it's a wonderful ferment, but this principle doesn't just apply to manures. It applies to weeds through the garden. Um, Just imagine creating these lacto ferments of weeds where you put about, you know, 3% salt and then you just ferment your most noxious weeds because then this is this is probably the most significant thing I've found in just observing the garden is that you're looking in nature for a plant that will thrive in the way that you wish your garden plants would thrive. And it's thriving in the same conditions. So if you're in an arid region and you want your lettuce to stay, stay succulent, you're going to draw on something that stays succulent in desert conditions like a cactus. Um, alternatively, where I am, if I have a squash whose leaves wilt a bit in the summer heat, I'm going to look out into the field and say, all right, what weed is standing tall, staying fleshy, and has perky leaves, and never seems to wilt in the midday sun? For me, that's pokeweed, which has a significant portion of potassium, which is really helpful for plants who are wilting in the midday heat, but you don't have to know about its scientific material chemical properties, you just have to know that plant is thriving the way I want this plant to thrive. Rot it in the right way and then apply that to the plant. You don't even have to go through the saline solution to do it. Uh, Maria Toon writes about uh, using stinging nettles and rotting that in a bucket. And every time you pass it, you give it a good stir. Well, It seems to contradict the biodynamic ideal of having no odors, that a healthy organism is odorless. Well, that's completely true. And I would say this idea of a stinking um, kind of liquid manure actually verifies the idea of an odorless organism, is that you've destroyed the nettles, you've gotten rid of its original signature, and you've reduced it to its pure formative forces, to the radiant properties, including scent, including its stink. And once it begins to really stink, that is why it can be assimilated by another plant. So it has to be reduced to a state like that to be fed directly as a medicine to a plant that's failing. Um, So you can reduce these to their stink so that the other plants can inhale them, almost like aromatherapy. And it can be done with any weed.
0: Uh, You don't remember the Texan's name, do you?
1: Not offhand. It's something I can send... uh, to you by email.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested. That's a, that's a great story. Um, also, last time we spoke, you mentioned uh, these uh, agnahotra salts, uh, the, the idea of using a, a manure calcination in a kind of a traditional Indian alchemical, uh, I don't know, setup.
1: Yeah. Um, for those unfamiliar, the agnahotra is a kind of an inverted copper ziggurat. And you start with a bit of ghee, you dip some dried manure, almost like sticks of manure, into the ghee, and you light that. You ignite it. And then you allow it to burn. You just keep stacking a little bit of manure in there, and then you allow the whole thing to burn while there's an incantation of a particular Sanskrit mantra. This is done exactly at sunrise and exactly at sundown, your local time. So you can already feel there's an inner kinship to some of the ideas in biodynamics. Um, I feel like this would be something to consider combining with the 500 and it's something I'm playing with, but I can't speak in too much more detail until I've done a bit more in terms of experiments. But in the Agnihotra, this will be burned. It's supposed to have a cleansing power for a very wide area, but then this manure ash is spread through the garden and has quite a powerful effect.
0: Uh, tell us about your work in identifying alternatives or, or equivalents for the materials used in the preps.
1: Yeah, this is something that's pretty close to my heart. Steiner repeatedly in the agriculture course says that these can be substituted. And that's really important. He wasn't being dogmatic about this. If anything, he probably knew what grew there, knew what their weeds were, and he informed them here's how to use what will easily be accessible to you. There's only one preparation that he says would be difficult to replace, and one that he couldn't imagine a substitute for, and that's particularly stinging nettles, um, which he says belongs growing around the human heart. It's a very special plant, but I would extend that image to include much of the Urtica family in general, but my way of trying to almost triangulate a suitable replacement is to investigate anything Steiner has to say in his medical lectures and beyond about that particular herb, the one you wish to replace, that is. Then looking into indigenous traditional plant medicine and seeking things that will serve a similar role. So if you're looking to replace nettles, for example, you'd look for something that's a blood builder, a blood tonic, something that's good for the heart and the circulatory system. And then the third thing is to reach into whatever secular science is available in terms of studies, it's something that is empirically shown to have certain benefits or not for a certain system. Um, if you're able to triangulate those, you're probably getting pretty close to a potential candidate. But again, this is not one that's based off of you having the perfect image of the plant. You don't have to understand its absolute spiritual qualities, you can look from the particular and approach it from there. Um, this isn't to say I'm necessarily an Aristotelian. I have a lot of platonic influences. Then again, Aristotle had a ton of platonic influences because that was his master. But I'm trying to provide people, everyday people, with tools so that they can, so to speak, reverse engineer these plants and find one. So another might be like chamomile. It's Um, there's an Herbal Simples book that I found from the early 20th century before biodynamics, and there's a remedy in it for flatulence. And what is done is you take tripe, which is intestines, and you boil it together with chamomile, and you create a decoction, and then the patient who is suffering from flatulence drinks this fluid. But that's very close to what Steiner's indicating in terms of combining chamomile with intestines and i was just tickled to death to find that because i wasn't expecting it i just i dig through every herbal text i can find and see what anyone has ever said on chamomile or yarrow or nettles and you'll find that there were some of these indications already so steiner didn't just pull these out of thin air he combined them in a special way absolutely but there are hints of these peppered through lore and old wives tales. But again, a lot of them weren't tested and there's a lot of nonsense mixed in with legitimate ideas.
0: So I've got one. Uh, why the horn or the hoof?
1: Oh yeah. That's a, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, yeah. The horn is very special. According to Rudolf Steiner, there are multiple ways that you know your body can express itself it will either express itself in this kind of raying out form like we see with our fingers you don't see that on a cow on a cow all of that's closed in and rather than having individualized fingers they're all held together as this kind of big fat toe Um, if you look at the skeleton more closely you can see that there's more commonality than we realize between us and the cow but All of that process is dammed up there. And this is something Steiner says causes no communication to the outside world. The hoof is kind of this block, a dam. It stops things from ringing out. And every new layer that's formed on the horn is a sign of another deflection back into itself. That deflection back into itself is radically different from, say, the formation of our fingertips or the formation of antlers on a deer, where these forces are quite literally raying out. You can see them growing up, raying out every year. In the case of the deer, the antler falls off time and again. But the deer versus the cow here, the cow is using these as, I would almost describe them as, uh, it's a parabolic mirror, where it's sensitive to what's happening within the cow and then echoes it back inside rather than allowing it to escape. If you look at the an infrared image of the horns, uh, they are exceedingly warm, and they actually help retain heat. They retain the scent that the cow would have otherwise diffused. I mean, the horn itself, the inside is really just a long extension of the cow's sinus cavity. So it is part of how the cow senses, not just its outer environment, more but more specifically how it is sensitive to its inner environment. You could almost think of it as, um, you know, those old ear horns that people would use to listen more closely. This is what the cow uses, so to speak, to be more attentive to its inner astral world, everything that's happening inside of it. So the cow is just as sensitive as a deer, but the cow is sensitive to what's happening inside of her rather than what's happening outside of her. Um, So this horn is something that blocks these forces from escaping and helps the cow then be attentive and more sensitive to what's happening inside. I could continue to the horn uh, versus the antler, but you asked about the horn.
0: I would like to hear horn versus antler, but I'd also like to better understand horn as an equivalent to hoof.
1: Oh yeah, Um, very similar process there. It's Both are made out of keratin, both are a shutting off, both deflect what was there back into the organism. The horn is a better shape. It's much better for closing things in, but yeah, the hoof to me, it's very similar. Wherever you get that kind of blocked off part of an animal, you're seeing that process. And anywhere that you have keratin growing, growing, regrowing, that is... a clear indication of a link to the metabolic system because wherever something is growing growing and regrowing it must have a relationship to the metabolic system. In deer it's a horn of the antlers that grow and fall off In cows it's the hooves that are constantly growing and shedding but it's also the horns In rabbits it's their front teeth uh, their front teeth continue to grow and if they don't have something to chew, well they it hurts them. But this is a linkage to the process that's at work within the metabolic system. For me, horns and, and hooves are very much the same thing. It's just at a different aspect of it. They're stopping something from raying out there, which would be more articulated forces of will, but will towards the outer world. Um, they're just serving as this uh, kind of clubby foot rather than something that can be used to craft
0: yeah, let's uh, let's hear um, horn versus antler. Yes,
1: yeah. um, the antler itself is raying out these forces. It's, it's, you can see it looks like a stream; it's just flowing out from the deer. And this is the opposite. It's a release valve. So where you see the horn or the hoof, deers also have hoof, um, you are seeing a very different thing. So the antlers actually increase the deer's sensitivity. To the outer world, and this is by this is a radical contrast to what's happening with the horn. The deer becomes more sensitive to sound the bigger these antlers have grown. If you look at elk, we've actually done some studies on the elk and the function of its antlers in relation to hearing. That when they have their antlers full grown, their hearing is significantly increased. Now what does this have to do with the preparations? Well it gets into some of Steiner's kind of occult physiology but Steiner says somewhere and I cannot tell you where right now but he says that um, when Adam fell it was his kidneys falling and that's a curious thing to say but if you look back into human embryology What you're really going to see there is that the kidneys begin by our ears. They don't begin in our lower organism. They begin with the ears. So the sense of hearing and our kidneys have a deep relationship. So for me, that has a kinship to what's happening with the deer and also why we draw from the bladder. Um, There's... Something a lot of us will probably be familiar with, which is the the um, brain gut axis. This is something Steiner was already talking about a hundred years ago, but we're now starting to popularize that term finally. But there's another axis. Wherever you have something in the upper organism, there will be a reflection and a kinship in the lower organism. In the case of the ears, the relationship is to the kidneys. In fact, there are these. Medicines that are poisonous to the kidneys, and if they're poisonous to the kidneys, they're often also toxic to the ears. And this is called the auto renal axis. So, there are all of these axes between the human being, and we're using one versus the other. In the case of the cow, it's this delicate sense of scent, and it's a, scent in a sensitivity towards inner scent, whereas in the deer, it has more to do with sight and in particular to do with hearing, that relationship of the kidneys and ears and the upper organism, and therefore also to the antlers. And that's why we use uh, the bladder, for me, in my opinion.
0: The, the bladder is on axis with sight?
1: Um, that's on axis with um, hearing and with the ear in particular. But the entire deer, you're right to say sight, is oriented towards the outer world. That includes its antlers, which heighten its sensitivity to any sound anywhere but any nervous animal with large like wide eyes this includes rabbits mice kangaroo which are used in australia as a a deer bladder substitute all of these whiskered animals with nervous eyes all of them have heightened sensitivity to the outer world and they need the ability to almost vent um etheric forces in order to continually remain sensitive to the outer world. Steiner talks about if we have surplus ethericity in our organism, it kind of puts us into a stupor. Um, And if the world around us, the air around us, were too alive, we would just kind of fall into a coma of sorts. Well, the cow kind of lives there. Um, In relation to the rest of us, the cow is actually just, entranced by what's happening in her own gut to such a point that she might not even be interested in your presence at all unless she's hungry. Um, And a happy cow is not a hungry cow. So a cow will have that kind of almost glazed-over look on her eyes and be very happy (laughs) observing her inner world, whereas you'll never see that on a deer or um, a wild equivalent of a cow like bison. They have much more nervous energy and have the eyes more akin to the deer. But for me, that's a relationship of kidneys and hearing.
0: So uh, would you say that a, a bison is not a, a good equivalent for a, a domesticated cow in, in the making of the preps?
1: Well, it's a different one. In some ways, it's better because the bison are indigenous. Um, they've mm-hmm. been here forever. On the other hand, if you look at the skeleton of bison... The midsection is hugely developed. It has this nice ridge on the top, and these are muscular animals, much more of the rhythmic system developed, and also much more suited to running and quickly. Um, whereas, if you to weigh the uh, equivalent, uh, if you weigh the their metabolic system, their digestive tract, take that weight, compare it to their body weight. It's a mere fraction of what it is for the domesticated cow. The domesticated cow is far more oriented towards that metabolic side of things, whereas bison have to fend for themselves. And because of that, they retain more of the nervous energy and they maintain a bit more of the capacity to have to think and worry about their problems, which is to say bison are extracting more from their manure Than domesticated cows have to. Domesticated cows leave behind a lot more than what bison do because we serve as their intellect, so to speak, whereas wild animals always have to be fending for themselves and worrying about predation. In a sheltered environment, the cow can actually be more itself than it can in the wild. So it's not that you'd get bad results at all. You would just get a slightly different emphasis And the emphasis would be um, just a little more diluted because it's not a primarily metabolic animal.
0: Do you have any more uh, kind of global examples for um, alternatives, like kangaroo as opposed to stag or, you know, like we just discussed, bison?
1: Um, If you were to be forced, and again, I'm not recommending that people jump to experiments. I'd say practice doing (laughs) the original one enough so that then, Alternatives begin to uh, disclose themselves, but start with the, the original recipe. I'm a, I am an innovator, but I'm a very conservative one. Um, I like to ground myself in what has been established and then experiment. I might experiment a lot, but I start with the original. Um, other ones would be just any nervous animal. Um, something that behaves like the deer on the farm look, you have a whole range of things from, uh, uh, rabbits to goats, to sheep, all of these nervous whiskered animals, not carnivores, but herbivores, um, belong to that same spectrum. It's not going to have the same effect again, but if you're trying to approach the ideal and the ideal is the deer, um, and you don't have access to the deer, it would be better to choose something that is close to the deer. Um, even though you might not be able to get it. Um, That's how I approach the ideas of the sheaths. And I'm not trying to be radical or revolutionary or say that there's anything wrong with the originals, but if you're in a pinch and must reach for something else, I look for something with large nervous eyes, nervous energy. They're usually whiskers, pronounced, they usually speak with their tails, like deer do. Uh, A lot of these are nervous animals, yeah don't have expressive faces. They instead use the back end for communication.
0: Interesting. Have you ever used uh, pigs or hogs for anything?
1: Um, The only thing I've used hogs for is to seal the ends of the horns when I bury them. And that is something that was done with the original preparations, and that seems to have been discarded. The main reason for it seems to have been just to keep dirt out But, uh, so I have actually saved bladders when I slaughter and then use those on the horns. It does seem to have a good effect because it really closes it off and seals it in within itself and you have far fewer critters getting in. You have, uh, I don't want to say if it's a better product, but it is a consistency that you like to see. And I I can't claim that it's better, but... It's nice when the horns don't have any dirt falling into them because you have, you know, fully differentiated horn manure, and I, I like to do that. So I have used bladders for that. I haven't used pigs for anything else at all in terms of the preparations. They're just, and the reason for that fits into this idea of the of the cows and the antlers is that pigs are just too smart. Um, they use up way too much of the so to speak, thought forces or eye potential within the manure. They, they use it up. They don't leave much behind in their manure. but That also means that their whole organism is just oriented in the wrong way. If we're trying to restore specific forces, they are far more extractive. I mean, if you just put pigs on a field, you can see what they do to it versus mm-hmm. if you put sheep or cows. So it's the wrong impulse. I, I would actually say only, other than human manure – pig manure is just second worst for the farm so I, I generally avoid it um even in composting
0: so uh moving on i uh, you've expressed an interest in this uh walarius who was he and what are some of his ideas that you find particularly interesting
1: yeah um walarius is an interesting character um really recommend people looking him up but He's known as kind of one of the founders of agricultural chemistry. He was a Paracelsian alchemist, and one of his works, which was translated by Mills, I believe, um, that work goes through his recommendations for agriculture. Um, I find it rather compelling because of its similarity to the structure of the agriculture course given by Rudolf Steiner. Which is to say, I believe Rudolf Steiner had read this, not only read this, but in some ways based the structure of the agriculture course off of this. And that's not to say he stole from this in any way at all. Quite the contrary, there are certain key points, <laughs> even in order, that Steiner disagrees with Valerius, per- And one instance I can remember right now is Valerius says that um, if there's any stray bush or shrub or tree, it needs to be cut down in order to make way for more room. Well, Steiner says exactly the opposite thing, and Steiner is correct there. So it feels like there's a dialogue happening behind the scenes with this text, and I find that remarkable. But Valerius, his emphasis is on the term pinguefaction, which is the fattening of the earth, and that's the purpose of manuring. And that gets close to Steiner's idea, which is this idea of giving vitality back to the earth, but not only vitality. It needs to have more than that. For Valerius, the potent fraction of manure is what you can distill from it. And he found that the hotter burning manures, like poultry manure or horse or something, have a higher portion of uh, oil. So, yeah, he was practicing distilling different types of manure, which sounds like a smelly process, and then he would measure and compare the ratio of manures to the others. But that, for him, was the benefit of it. And to me, that resonates rather well with this alchemical idea of dew or rain bringing this, uh, this oily element from the air. Well, Arius defines it as, I think he calls it, the the acid-fatty principle in the air. And the thing is, why is manure useful? It's because these animals have already done this extractive separating process. They have a whole climate inside of themselves. They have their own precipitate, precipitation inside of themselves, and that is what we can use in the manure. And that's why we compost, and we don't want the scent to escape. I think it was paracelsus who said that the power of the manure is in its odor so we want to trap that as much as possible and there's always its tendency to volatilize and therefore why we want to build odorless compost it's not that the odor is gone it's just now settled and contained
0: tell us more about this uh this fattening um other other things we can use to to oh, yeah. further that principle yeah
1: um, this extends widely. Um, I believe it was Charles Walters who talked about the, a better and more economic use for the world in terms of agricultural production, climate, would be to use crude oil rather than refining it into uh, petrol, would be to be using it as an agricultural input, that with a proper biological life, it's broken down and is just feeds soil carbon and it's fuel for agriculture. Now, I have never done that on my field, though I have read about some interesting experiments where it was done, and with success, and without harmful byproducts. But this is part of what I think the valerian aspect is about in the agriculture course, where we talk about valerian sprayed out over the fields. Steiner says it helps with the phosphorus process for him, Phosphorus and sulfur are kind of interchangeable words. He uses them um, pretty loosely. And they almost always, when he's using them like that, mean alchemical sulfur rather than what we think of as elemental sulfur. So alchemical sulfur for Steiner, he says it is the flower. He says phosphorus is the flower. Um, it's the part of any plant that is warmer and radiant. So it will usually have a scent. It will be surrendering itself to the environment. It will be physically warmer. You will be able to detect with an infrared camera that the flower is usually the warmer part of the plant. That's not always true. In the case of alliums, uh, like garlic, garlic will be running a fever in the middle of summer under the ground. But that will tell you kind of where this phosphorus process is most active. We can bring this phosphorus process, this alchemical sulfur power to the soil through manures, through composting. Valerian in particular, with its high concentration of essential oils, for me helps activate that process. But anything with that oil carried into it can bring that vitality into the soil. And I like using milk, honestly. Good raw milk spread over the field is a wonderful source of good fats. You want a good butter fat content, so you want whole milk, if at all possible. Sometimes this is combined to a milk and honey stir, but that's very similar. You're just adding some of the plant power as well.
0: How much honey would you add to how much milk?
1: Um, there are different ratios, but I've the recipe I can remember now is about a gallon of milk, and I think it was a quarter cup of honey. And those can be stirred together and then sprayed out over the field. Um, Steiner speaks of honey and milk in the same spectrum as silica. He has silicic acid brings that crystallizing mineral force. Honey has the same hexagonal force, but on a plant level. It's not really an animal product. Yes, animals collect the nectar, Yes, they dehydrate it, but it's primarily still condensed plant juice, concentrated plant juice. Um, and then he lists above that as the animal hexagonal force milk. So these are these belong to the same spectrum. And um, if you milk and honey together brings these etheric formative forces together. So the plant world and the animal astral impulse together, which is one of the mildest and uh, sweetest things you can give to young tender plants. More direct or harsher astrality of uh, raw manures or like fish emulsion. You can overdo those pretty easily. It's pretty hard to overdo milk though.
0: Well, tell us about your work in translating the agriculture course and what did you find uh, by doing the translation yourself?
1: Um, yeah, this was something I undertook a couple of years ago. and kind of did it all in about eight weeks um it was a flurry it felt honestly more like uh, channeling than it did translating um but the idea behind it was to wrestle with it myself um and by the end see it in a new light um and I ended up doing that. I wrestled with passages that I found to be incorrectly translated, um, and of no fault of the translator at all. I have nothing but respect for everyone who's done the translation so far, but none of them had been done directly by you know, a professional farmer. And, I mean, why wouldn't it be? It's, it's an unusual <laughs> for a farmer to try to grapple with a translation project, I think. But one passage in particular I found to be troubling. It's one that always bothered me because I could see the idea in my mind, but the text just did not make sense. And this is where Steiner suggests um, using horse manure as a substitute for the cow manure. And I'd like to interject here that almost everyone who has tried a substitute for the horn manure has found it to, to be inadequate for one reason or another.
0: Well, you have to wrap the horn with the horsehair, right?
1: That is what it says in English. The German is a bit more ambiguous. The German doesn't actually say what's getting wrapped. And I think the correct way to translate it is that the manure itself is what must be encompassed and bound to the manure. Let's uh, the hair. Sorry. Horse hair must be bound to the manure and that together must be added to the horn. Interesting. Uh, so more specifically, it needs to be a spagyric process, which is the, the head polarity and what is coming out as keratin must be combined with the metabolic polarity and the two must be brought to, into direct communication The horn is just a convenient thing made out of similar substance that could enclose it. Now, if you were to do a pure horse 500, it would be the hoof of a horse, um, which seems like a shame. Most most of us aren't eating horse or killing them on purpose anymore. Um, But you would take horse manure, the mane of a horse, and put that together in a horse hoof. That would be an ideal version of that. Um, I find that what's lacking in a lot of these alternative versions of 500 is that we're not combining it with the that animal's own substance. So if it were a sheep, I would say it needs to have some of the wool. Um, if it were a chicken, it needs to have the chicken's feathers, but it needs that part. Whatever's coming out of that animal as the head polarity, as this keratin process needs to be recombined otherwise you're combining kind of the uh, manure polarity from the horse with the head polarity from a cow that's more of a chimera than it is a spagyric
0: that's great anything else
1: um yeah that was the that was thing. once i worked my way through the ideas became so much clearer to me um having to wrestle with it not just in the original translations that are in English, which are you know they they require effort in themselves, but working with it in German forced me to try to find the idea itself because uh, it's it's hard to even speak about it. But I'm reaching into a world of ideas and trying to see what Steiner is seeing. No, not getting hung up on the words because there are errors. In any handwritten notes anyone ever takes, there are errors whenever someone expands someone's shorthand notes, as agriculture, course, is. And then there are going to be errors when there's translation. There are going to be errors in my translation. But that's not the point. The point is to try to see into the spiritual world and reach the ideas. For me, the foundational idea comes to the Spagiric process of that 500, and that's the first and foundational one. What the cow has separated, we recombine. Or if you're using a horse, that's what the horse has separated, must be recombined. And if you're drawing from multiple organisms, you're going to get, it might be a decent effect, might be an okay effect, but you're not going to have that kind of higher octave level of a full spagyric from a single organ.
0: And it still feels like, uh, if we're talking in spagyric terms, that it's only two of the three, right? Because it's still only the spirit and the soul, and that the body. We it might be improved by adding um, assault.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where. So, uh, so you're, you're right, I, but with the cow in particular, the cow when she defecates, she often also urinates into. Her mm. patty. So when you put the cow manure into the horn, you are adding its separated salts, its separated manure, and the horn from the top end. So that's, for me, the image why the cow itself is the most complete version.
0: Thank you. Uh, kind of along those lines, a different mineral process. Do you pepper?
1: I do pepper. I do a couple approaches to this. Um, I have tried burning them to such a point that all I get is their salts, and then I tried, then I crystallize the salts, and then I use those on the field. Um, I have also tried just charring them where they're just a little blackened, so it looks the way Steiner described, a bit like pepper, like cracked pepper. Um, but Steiner also says that it might work better to rot them, so take your pests or take seeds and then rot them. I think it's significant that Steiner talks about the peppers in a a section where he's going into these ideas of generating uh, pathogens to target rats, for example. So, there's a passage in some of Steiner's lectures to the workers at the Gertianum, where he talks about water that runs through a graveyard for a village, but that's where everybody gets their water they drink from. And because of that, he said, everyone in the village just looks tired. They're exhausted. Their color is wrong. They look washed out because they're drinking from this. And what they're really getting is like little bits of the rot from the graveyard, particularly from human rot going into the water. And then they drink it and it just saps their vitality. That, to me, is the image of the peppers. The peppers, to me, are primarily centered around these negative byproducts of the rot of that particular species, which is to say, um, if you were to leave a corpse out, that's a good way to spread disease, particularly if it's a corpse of the same species. Um, What we're trying to generate here is something a little different than that. You can Push it towards the rot process, yes, and that can often be very effective. But in terms of just the salts, I like to think of it almost in terms of alchemy and it being this salt-ash side of things. These salts are unique to that organism. Like, you can think about it in terms of the unique mineral profile of this particular plant or this particular weed. It's unique to that. When you've reduced it, to that salt-ash content, those things are very hungry and want to return to their former state of balance within that plant. So what they will do is, when you apply them to the soil, they will seek out the unique corresponding sulfur aspect and bind that. Um, Additionally, if that salt is then consumed by a plant, it weakens it. The way that it weakens the people who are drinking water from the graveyard. It immediately saps their vitality. I think of it as uh, if you've ever been out on a on a sunny day and you don't drink enough water, uh, you get dehydrated even though you felt good. What's really happened is the salt content of your body is too high. There's not enough water. There's not enough ethericity for you to manage it. The same thing happens with pest peppers it's not that it immediately kills them but it makes them tired and if they're tired and have a headache they don't really feel like reproducing so for me that's the impulse of these preparation of the peppers and what I like to do with the peppers is I like to feed the peppers to the plants that uh, I want to protect so for example squash bugs I reduce those to an ash and then I Put those in the hole when I'm planting my squash so that the squash is permeated by this kind of superabundance of the salts of that particular pest. So, if the pest shows up and starts to try to drink the sap of this plant, they immediately become sluggish. And that is my conception of how these work. I also rot um, hornworms in water and then I use that rot water to water in all my tomatoes. Again, I'm feeding the plants with the corpses of the pests so that the plant becomes distasteful and makes them sluggish.
0: Do you uh, communicate with elementals?
1: That's a difficult question for me because a lot of weird things happen to me all the time and I, I do not see visualizations of gnomes or dwarves or any of that myself. My wife is more inclined towards that world than I am. I tend to be delivered ideas and insights, which are clearly not mine much of the time. I I don't merit a lot of the insights that I come to. They just strike me, and they're clearly a visitation that I did very little to provoke. Often things will come to me that work and I have, it's not me. It's not my genius at all. It's just something just delivered it to me because I was a convenient outlet. Um, So I, my way of relating to the elemental world is a little more indirect. Um, For me, they are like, in Steiner's view, they're like they have an eth- they have ethericity and they have astrality, but they don't have the higher uh, sense of I. They don't have our sense of rationality, and they also don't have a physical body. So because of that, they're kind of like a pet if you think of your dog or so or your cat, but they're missing the physical body. So imagine like a ghost dog. There aren't dogs, obviously, but it's a way to think of. How they feel and how they act and their habits are such that they behave according to the law of an eye for an eye. They have not themselves all learned the idea of turning the other cheek. Now, what's interesting is the the principle of turning the other cheek doesn't mean that we roll over for other people. It means that I do not have to treat you the way that you treat me. Whereas an eye for an eye, though a limiting feature in terms of retribution, that's uh, more initially more more of a mechanical response. Then the elemental world lives with that idea for the most part. So if I'm miserable to my field, the elemental beings are going to respond in kind because that's what they know. On the other hand, if I do something generous and unnecessary and sacrifice my time and give it to the field, well, they will then also realize they can do the same thing. And that's where we serve an important mediary role for the elemental world. For me, human beings serve at their best, particularly in natural settings like in a garden. We serve as the angels of the elemental world and can waken their attention to freedom, where they have the possibility to choose to do something unnecessary for someone else as well. And that has a, I would say, a humanizing effect. And it's one that can live beyond you, because if you have sort of gentled, tamed, and befriended these, they can then develop that as their new habit energy and can continue to do kind and unnecessary things for others long afterwards.
0: Tell us about your thoughts on uh, Jakob Burma and his meditations on the seven qualities.
1: Oh, yeah. Whew. So Jakob Burma is a fascinating character. He was a merchant. He made shoes. He did pretty well for himself, actually, And in the middle of the religious wars in Europe. But he had this vision at a glance. He was seeing a reflection from a lamp, and everything hit him. He couldn't understand everything that he saw, and it took him years to unpack it. But Steiner says that if you really want to understand theosophy, all you need is Burma and Paracelsus. So I went back to Burma and Paracelsus. Um, The seven qualities, capital Q quality is how he refers to them, are... analogous to Steiner's seven life processes. So what Burma refers to as a principle or a quality, Steiner refers to the activity of that quality. Um, But they're analogous things, like they're intimately related. Um, Burma goes through a process in the Aurora where he talks about how things begin. And any organism begins with what he calls the astringent property, which is it draws things into itself. If you put alum in your mouth, it dries your mouth out. Well, the seed must be astringent if it is to draw water into itself. And that potential then causes a contradiction. Immediately, the seed does something else. It's expansive and bitter. And that expansive and bitterness contradicts that drawing into itself. And the bitterness is expressed as the emergence of the green. So you have the astringent root, you have the bitter green leaf. These two wrestle with each other, and if they are not exposed to their spiritual source, their spiritual sun, they will experience the third principle, which Burma refers to as angst or anguish. And you can see this directly. If you were to start Sprouts... Oh, the first thing that comes out, you see the roots pip. Oh, then you see some greenery start to aspire. But if you then put those sprouts in a dark cabinet, you will see what Burma means when he talks about the world of dark wrath and anguish. That is the third principle. This anguish property is this desire for something, but it's something that cannot be fulfilled from within the seed. It cannot be fulfilled within the soil It must be something that comes to it from outside of itself, and it has to be from the sun. When that strikes, that opens up a whole new world, and then you get a reiteration or a sublimation of those three lower qualities. That that initial astringency, which drew water into itself, then becomes externalized as bark. Yacob Burma refers to this principle, the fifth principle, as one that is seen in the bark of trees and in the creation of skulls. This is not a coincidence in my mind that this corresponds very neatly to the fifth preparation of the oak bark preparation, Um, at least the one numbered five. Then that continues to the bitter property returning again, but again, this is not, An expansive leafy process this is a contractive leafy process when we see that in the enclosed bud so when you eat capers or when you harvest the bitter buds of dandelion that aspect that's the return of the bitter which then gives way to the final property which is the surrendering of joy to the spiritual world which is the opening of the flower and that we see in valerian you notice there's of course an extra preparation in this list when you compare it to what Steiner gave. This can be explained based on Steiner's work Theosophy, where he speaks of crystals, specifically the process of crystallization as a mediator between the purely mineralized world, which is full of chaos. And then the plant world that there's the physical world, the primordial soup from which, Everything emerges, the prima materia, and then crystals are that transition hinting at the movement towards plant form. Those two belong at the beginning of this process together, and Steiner puts them together, which I do not think is a mistake. If we just look at Steiner's uh, theosophy, the processes follow directly there as well as they are articulated in the agriculture course. But for me, this entire work of Yaka Burma is a long extended seed meditation that he repeats time and time again across all of these works that he does. And for me, it's that the plant is this living organism, an emergent phenomenon between earth and between cosmos. And in the same way, our soul is an emergent phenomenon between the physical world and the world of the spirit. But it is a plant. As soon as we can shift and start seeing these processes in terms of the plant, it also aligns with the chakras. It, li- it aligns with everything. Everything I've applied it to, it has served almost like this universal key.
0: Which which calendar do you use, and uh, are you doing any further uh, astrobiodynamic investigation?
1: Yeah, um, I use the Maria Toon one primarily mostly because of the experiments that they include in there, but I like the Stella Natura as well. Um, I often have both side by side. Um, I really appreciate the essays in the Stella Natura one. Um, where we are, most of what I do is limited to the phase of the moon. It's three aspects primarily. Um, Alex Bodolinsky commented that if Maria Toon had done her research at some place that was closer to sea level, like the Netherlands, she would have primarily seen the effect of the moon on plants. Well, I live at 32 feet elevation, so I see mostly lunar effects. This does not mean that it is insignificant when you look at the outer planets. it just their effect is muted. It's not as clear. So if anything, I need to amplify it more, which means I usually will need to draw on outer planetary forces to expedite ripening, to mitigate mold. So Equisetum 501 tendency, these outer planetary processes, I need to bring directly to bear and almost bypass the fact that I have this cloud of humidity muting the outer planets. So I have to bring those to bear because the light gets refracted and all of their effect becomes just weaker here. Whereas if you were to go to somewhere of higher altitude with drier air, the opposite is the case. So when I work with the calendar, it's usually with the moon. That's what I like to work with. That's what makes the clearest difference here. And that's the thing. What makes the most difference in your place will vary from place to place. So uh, the same calendar is going to be used differently by different people. And anyone who lives with one place long enough will see what the differences are or what they should be. So what I'm doing is not going to be universal for everyone, but it might be applicable to people living at low altitude near the water. Um, I tend to approach this and you can kind of see how where I am in my geography is dictating how I then deal with astrological conditions because the moon kind of dominates everything. Um, I then am drawn to Paracelsus's idea that uh, of astronomia, that we as alchemists have the power to recreate astrological conditions. And that's what, a retort is, that's what an alembic is. When we create a closed distillations, it's a microcosm of the entire uh, Earth itself. And when we bring to bear specific preparation at a particular time, we are bringing that planetary influence to bear when it otherwise naturally wouldn't have shown up. And so that's more how I try to approach things is to recreate the conditions that I want using the forces at work in the biodynamic preparations and their principle guiding how I space my plants, how I thin them, how I prune, when I spray them, what I treat them with. Mine tends to be more of a manipulation of those processes as they work within the earth sphere. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not without reference to the outer planets, but if I do it, and I really need their help, I will wait for a moment where there is a proper alignment so that then I can spray them out. So if there's a nice opposition and between an inner planet and an outer planet, I'll reach for one of the outer planetary preparations knowing that it's probably going to work more effectively in that moment. But that's the most that I do with it. I've done various experiments, but i found nothing fails as much as things when i ignore the moon so the moon gets my attention
0: and you also told me that um the uh, it's it's a cumulative effect right that the if you do astro tending to your plants it's it's it accumulates and it's not necessarily that it needs to happen every time
1: yeah that's my feeling and maybe it's me just justifying myself because Right. I'm a market gardener, I do a CSA, I have to keep producing. But, um, I mean, everything is constantly changing. I'm constantly changing, you're changing, the plant's changing. But when we tend it, really, I do think matters. And that's where, like, I appreciate some of what Dennis Klocheck talks about, which is like tending a particular plot, only on the particular days that suit that the coming plant that you're going to put there and then disturbing the soil repeatedly in those ways. I really like that idea. Um, I can't always afford that because I have to wait till, you know, it's not raining. Soil conditions are right for me, (laughs) the weather and the season and the moon come first. And then if I'm able to fine tune, I do reach for these others as well. But I find that even if I plant them at the wrong time, if I am tending them, and this, for me, tending is any major disturbance, which is uh, separating plants, transplanting plants, pruning plants, harvesting. Any moment where you're kind of breaking them apart from where they had been or tearing off a piece of the plant, there is a significant stimulating effect. Then It's like pruning a tree, a flush of hormones, well, what's going to happen? Those are going to be governed by that moment, which is going to con- include the entire cosmic situation. So for me, <coughs> you can nudge things more to where they should be with kind of, you can think of it as uh, rehabilitating them to be more the way you wanted them to. If, if this weren't possible, uh, then everyone who had an inauspicious birth chart would just be doomed from the beginning or everyone who was born with inadequate nutrition young would never be able to recover. And we just might as well give up on all of them. I don't believe that. I think that there's always the possibility to nudge things towards something better and that's in the garden and that's with people. So for me, it really is cumulative. It's like watercolors. So every impression is another layer of color almost like lajeuring so yeah it makes a difference what the base color is but if you do enough tending with a different color coming in it's going to end up being the second color and not the first that predominates that's at least my feeling from tending plants it's i've never had a crop failure except when i ignore the moon so the rest of it i have been able to nurse along with the right treatment and the right tending at the correct times, even if I couldn't get it out at the exact perfect moment.
0: Well, uh, tell us about your operation. Uh, What are you producing now, and uh, where can one purchase your products?
1: Yeah, uh, well, we have about 50 acres. We're on the eastern shore of Virginia in Accomac. We're right between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean, this little peninsula, the sliver that kind of floats connected to Maryland. You have to get here by this weird Bay Bridge tunnel, which goes up and down. It's a very unpleasant experience for most people who first come out here. But we have cows, which are my favorite, sheep, and we have pigs. Those are the three meats we sell, pork, lamb, and beef. We also do eggs. We have a market garden, which is just a bit of everything. It's everything I want to eat. And then everything I think somebody else might want to eat. But we center it around what we're going to eat because at the heart of our operation is a homestead. We cook most of our own meals. Uh, We try to eliminate as much as possible. Our grocery bills There are certain things I don't grow. I don't grow rice yet. I don't grow wheat. So there are staples I still do have to purchase. That is what it is. But we do a CSA, which is limited to this area, but, I mean, I also make herbal products and we do ship those. Not a lot of it's listed on our website, but, uh, yeah, we do that as well. But it's a little bit of everything, herbs and vegetables, everything you can think of. We do a little bit of all of it. It's just a lot. And we've got, we've got two apprentices here now, another intern. And, uh, it's just, but other than that, it's just me and Natalie.
0: How can someone, uh, apply Uh, to be a candidate for your apprenticeship program?
1: Well, they can apply by contacting us through our website, perennialroots.com. We have an intimidating uh, application to scare off anyone who's not serious. But (laughs) most people who've uh, finished uh, filling it out (laughs) have been accepted.
0: Well, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today before we uh, close it down?
1: No, this is a good chat
0: appreciate it, man. Um, You can find Stuart, uh, as you said, at perennialroots.com
1: and you can find the Biodynamic Guild at biodynamicguild.org. Thank you.